Hi. It's like May. Uh, tell that to Chicago's weather, please. Oh, no. We had... There's a... Uh, everybody, there's a strange rain-snow phenomenon here called grapple. What is that? That doesn't sound like weather. Exactly. <laughs> that sounds like some kind of it weird food like, from... Well, that's the south in Philadelphia, um, which is... I. Wait, that, what? It's from Philadelphia? Isn't there, grapple. Isn't that what it's called? Grapple? What's in it? Scrapple. Scrapple. Different thing. And that's Sorry, from Philadelphia? Everybody. That makes scrapple, sense. Yeah. That sounds right. Hey, Philly. They're just, throwing, they're just throwing meat on the pan. The South, I didn't mean to disparage. It just does sound. You have weird sounding food down there. For me, a Yankee. <laughs> you are a total I'm like Yankee. a real Yankee. God. It's a problem. <laughs> I have a problem. I don't share feelings. It's like a whole thing. <laughs> Comes from being raised in cold Rhode Island winters. You're practically a man. Exactly. So anyway, I I don't know. I'll put a link to it in show notes. It's kind of like slushy snow. And it's called grapple. And it falls from the sky? Or is it grapple once it's on the ground? No, it falls from the sky. It's like a... You know how like when you were a kid, they would say like... And this is probably... A, like, as I'm about to say it, I was like, this is probably real wrong. Like, you know, like, it, I think as I was a child, I was told Eskimos. That now seems wrong. No, You know, that, like, native tribes in cold climates in the Arctic Circle have many different words for, snow. like, snow. Mm-hmm. So do Midwesterners. And grapple is just slush. It's like sleet. Do you have sleet? Yes. That's more like rain. I think grapple's like the snowier side. The snowy side. See, we here in New New England slash New York just say it's snowy, wet snow slash sleet. I don't know. I've learned a lot of new words for things since I moved back here. Listen, thank you, Midwest, for your I tried turning on my – I tried turning off my furnace yesterday morning because I was like, okay, well, it's cold at night, but then I'm sure it'll be fine during the day. It was like 42 degrees. I – that was just – a lie. I turned it back on immediately. I was like, oh no, it's yeah cold. Well, Eric went camping this weekend. That seems terrible. Which, and it poured with rain. And I was oh. like, what is this thing that you, why do people go outdoors for long stretches of time? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, everybody's heard me say this. The best thing about moving away from California was that I could stop pretending to like outside. <laughs> what a gift. Like, what a gift. Everyone in California is like, Let's go outside. Let's hike. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So then I was, of course, I was inside my warm home in New York City scrolling Instagram, and I discovered that there was a meteor shower last night. Did you have this over I, there? I don't know. You, don't know. So, you like so space. You like the sky. I do. I do. There's a lot of light pollution here, and I go to bed really early. Well, I don't know. I mean, there is here, too. I wasn't expecting to see said meteor shower, but I thought my husband, whom I enjoy – and I appreciate uh, – whom I appreciate enough to appreciate that he likes the outdoors uh, is somewhere where he does not have light pollution and would be able to look up at the sky and see a meteor shower. And so I sent it all to him and he was like, cool, this is great. And then it poured with rain. And I was like, I don't know why. Why do we do, do any of this? It just feels futile. <laughs> anyway weather so instead i stayed inside i bet you read a romance novel i in fact did read a romance novel i read a romance novel nobody on this podcast is going to be able to read for a little while 
Me too. So I guess we should just stop talking I about know, it. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to tease anyone. Um, but let's talk about what we're up to today. Maybe we should introduce her. Oh. You're listening to Fate of Mates, everyone. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. Do you know, Jen, speaking of all of this, I, w- I did an interview with a podcast uh, the other day, and I'm actually not sure when it's coming out, but, you know, we'll put it on everything. Um, but I did I did this interview, and, and as we, it was two, there were two hosts in me, and about halfway through, I realized, like, I was really hosting. Like, I had really, like, <laughs> fallen into this kind of rhythm. casual yes. chat where I would, like, interrupt a question and, like, tell a story. And then I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to behave in someone else's house anymore. <laughs> it's the worst. So I'm- apologies to everyone who has ever had me on as a podcast guest since we started Fate of Mates because I apparently am a really bad house guest. No, I don't know. I don't even. It's what it is. It's harder to have a guest who has a hard time talking than a that guest who's true. Like, we have experienced both, and there is definitely one that is more fun, and that is the person who just sl- slips into the like, host's chair. Yeah, give me the reins. I'll take over. It's fine. Yeah, wind them up and let them go. You know when it's really not okay to do that, Sarah, is when you visit someone else's classroom and you're like, oh. And you can't just take over. No. It. I find myself having to leave those situations. No, just like, do you visit just like for funsies? Are you like today? Yeah, I'm just going to come hang out in the back of my friend's room. Yeah, or like you just like walk in and check in something, and then you notice how things are going, and then you just whoop, turn right back around. Yikes! Yeah, fine. It's been a long time since it's happened, but em- empirically, when you're very skilled at a job and you see people doing it in a way that is maybe not your way. Yeah, sure. That's a nice way of saying it versus being a control freak, but it's fine. Well, everyone here knows what my job is. So. <laughs> uh, all right. So what are we doing today, Sarah? Well, I want to speaking of people who wind who you wind up and let go. I think we were really and we hope you all were, too. Um, we found our conversation with Christine Fian really wonderful and inspiring. And yes. we have been thinking about it a lot. And that plus, was it a question on Twitter? Yes, someone also asked a question, right, or made a suggestion. On Twitter about us uh, potentially doing an episode on long-form series in romance that just continue to deliver and deliver and deliver. And it's something that we talked about with Christine Fian. You should go back and listen to that episode, even if you're not a paranormal listener. It was really remarkable, or a paranormal reader. Um, but Christine has written nearly a hundred books, and they are very, almost entirely connected. Um, yes, you don't have to have read all the series to understand what's going on, but like there is a Fian universe, and um, so we started thinking about writers who do that kind of work, who write in in large universes or in connected series or just in long series that we have found really rewarding from beginning to end. And we thought that might be fun for all of you as summer approaches. And uh, maybe summer is the best time for you to just chill out and read a whole romance series. 
and look, we've talked about this, of course, obviously, in a lot of different ways, right? Season one was all about a series. Um, when Bridgerton, the first season of Bridgerton came out, we talked about romance families. Um, certainly quite a few of our, our trailblazers have talked about this, including, I think, often about Brenda Jackson, mm-hmm. who explicitly said that when she came up with the Westmorelands, it was because she realized that families sell and that she really wanted to have her own family. Um, so I think, you know, this isn't, I think, going to be revolutionary new ground, but it is really interesting to think about how series works under what circumstances. The other thing I want to say before we start is I believe, because I know what I'm going to talk about, that there will be a lot of spoilers <laughs> in this episode. So we're going to use chapters. Yeah, and we'll if use you chapters. on a pod, a pod listening thing, you can just skip yeah. to the next chapter if you right. don't want to be right. spoiled. Right. So just know that, everybody, especially when we get to the ones I for sure want to talk about. So... I'm, like, tethered to my microphone today. Like, I can't get further than four inches away from it because my cords are all com- uh, all tangled tangled up. So that's either really great or really terrible. And I'm sure we'll hear about that via text later. So, Sarah. Yes. I feel like we should start with you as a writer. Oh, God. Author. Do we? Do you? Well, is that where we should start? Well, here's why. Because here's what I want to say is, I think we all as readers realize that there are like two kinds of series. One, one that is conceived to be a series from the very beginning, that like as it was in the, as from the very beginning, the author knew the end point, which I think is what you That's do. That's what I do. And then there are series that just become popular with readers and is a rich enough world that the series just can kind of be, it's like the eternal flame, mm-hmm. but a series where it just is kind of can work in perpetuity kind of forever as long as the author wants to keep writing them and as long as readers want to keep reading them. And I think they do different work. I think that's true. I also think they have they're a very different writing experience. I expect I mean I expect I haven't read I haven't written that second version um ever but I certainly have read many 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 of those versions. Um you tend to see those in two places, uh, the second the second kind, right? It feels like you see long standing, far reaching, never ending series in paranormal and you see them in contemporary more than you see them in historicals. Yes, I would agree. Time is not on your side in a historical series like that, right? Yeah, well, there's that. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I we've talked about this before, and I don't know that we've ever really gotten to the bottom of the historical thing. But historicals more and more as I write them and as I read them and as time marches, they feel different to me. Like, it really feels like a very different kind of subgenre. Um, you know, paranormal, obviously all the subgenres feel different, but historical is doing a very different kind of thing. And so I think, I think like the series are naturally, they naturally end because we're every, every, uh, every historical feels a little bit like a small town in the sense that like there's a small community of people. We're, it's not very easy to expand the community necessarily in 
you know, in a in a ser- in a series structure. Um, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm saying. It's some it's something I've been thinking about, and I I'm it's a very half baked idea, so I don't want to really get into it. But the um, but I think that with contemporaries, it feels like it is really like contemporary small towns do feel expansive, right? You think about Robin Carr's Virgin River series or Jill Shalvis's uh, Lucky Harbor series, or any of the other Jill Shalvis series, right? It feels like, you know, there's a small town, there's a main street, and every storefront gets a romance novel, right? And that feels really connected to a small town um, or to contemporary. And then paranormal, but really, I think the subgenre that holds the most weight, that holds the whole care bears the torch of the longstanding series is paranormal. I write my Sarah's books are um, conceived in two in series as a series. Um, the idea of them of any one of my series is that if you that you can read any book on its own, but if you read them in order, they hold more weight for you they they feel more powerful as they like layer upon each other and that's because um the hope is that something happens in say book two that then inspires the events of book three um but you don't have to have experienced book two in order to understand it paranormal i think often you have to have experienced the prior book in order to understand the next one um for me uh the reason why i don't know i see you shaking your head but no no I'm yeah thinking. i mean i i don't think it's always but i think the world i think it's well about world building and we'll get world to building. that when we yeah, get to paranormal um for me the reason why i do it is because it's twofold one is um i really like a tight story like i like feeling when I have an idea, often I have an idea about a group of people and what they together are trying to do, right? So um, there's a really remarkable author named Heather Birch, and she um, talks about the kind of what a novel is. And she says a novel is three things. It's an unforgettable character, a relentless threat, and an impossible situation, and I think those, I think that's how I, that really speaks to me because that's how I think about series, like a group of unforgettable characters, a relentless threat to all of them. So, and not necessarily like they might all die, but sort of a a sense of a common conflict among all of them. They are all working toward a common thing. So I wrote a series that was about a casino and it was like the four owners of the casino and the casino had, was in it was the conflict it was or was wrapped up in the conflict of all four books and then an impossible situation is of course like what makes a great romance novel right like how are these two ever going to end up together so for me that's how i think about series and then i do the added thing of placing all my series in the same universe the universe right right which is reader care and feeding as much as it is anything else that is on my list to talk about for sure Here's the part that's really interesting, Sarah, which is, and something about your little list kind of illuminated this for me. We have a friend, I don't 
know that this person would want to like be claimed with this information. So which um, was sort of like, I don't think that in the era of trade paperbacks, series are really sustainable anymore mm. in contemporary. And I think that may be true. I It is true Do for Do you me. mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but to clarify, do you mean long series? Because I, I think yeah. about like Talia Hibbert, right? Like the Brown Sisters makes perfect sense. Right. Tight, it, it has, right. Farrah it, it Rochon. Can't just like, it cannot like just like spool out endlessly forever when you're talking about $20 books. That there's just like a limit to maybe what readers will invest in. Um, I think that's like part of it is literally just talking about it in terms of, you know, like you can get the entire Immortals After Dark series for a hundred bucks. Yeah. I have something to say about this though, I think, right? I'm not sure it is necessarily about price. I think it's actually about training readers to think about books in a certain way, right? Because when I started writing romance, you know, 15 years ago, and nobody was reading romance and trade because it didn't exist, right? Romance readers had forever, since Judith McNaught's Westmoreland's and Bertree Small's Sky O'Malley series, right, been trained to think of romance as series, right? Like, you know, we are trained as readers to go who in, as we're reading bo- the book, who comes next? Who's yeah, where is the hint of who comes next? And then I think when I would talk to people who did not read romance or they would read one of my books, they would go, wait a second. Like they would read Nine Rules and then they would go, wait, wait, the twin brother gets a book? Right. Like being surprised. It, they by were it. shocked exactly. by it. And you were, mm-hmm. and that was always a shock to me as a romance reader. It was like, well, right, obviously, right. That's the way it works. why is he even there? <laughs> right. As you all know, why I have a very bother? strong feeling about if you put a twin on the page. What has to happen? So I think that what's happening now is now that romance is in trade and readers who don't think of themselves as romance readers, right, are buying romances, they aren't trained to think, who's next? Here's what I will also say, though, Sarah, and I I say this as like, yes, and... There is no guarantee that the a planned series will actually get published if the first book doesn't sell well. Mm. Right? So it's like also I would imagine a bigger gamble as a writer. Yeah. Right? Like I mean I mean there is no doubt right now that people that publishers across the board are buying fewer books at one time, right? Like you know, I could I used to be able to sell four books and say it's a whole series. Yes. If this book does well, they will op- have an option to buy another one, but it is not part of the initial like deal, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this works in two ways. Like one is, I think in sometimes, okay, then like book one's a hit. And now it's like, okay, keep feeding me books in that series, but it was never really thought of that way. And it feels to me like every additional book feels like more and more of a stretch, Mm. right? Well, it does feel like the only person who could really make this work back in the day, like back in the day was Nora, right? J.D. Robb was in hardcover and the In-Death series was written as a constant, you know, they knew it would be never ending. I don't think that's true. I have heard, and maybe we'd have to, I heard it was three that like the I heard it was just three and then it was so popular. But maybe I'm wrong. But this goes to a point where that I was thinking of when when I was prepping for this 
episode, which maybe seems like I didn't do. <laughs> um, we prepped in our heads. Whatever. I, I was thinking about this episode, and I was thinking about how, as I think personally, of the real bangers when it comes to romance mm-hmm. series, like series that I have read every book of or yeah. almost every book of, right? I mean, obviously, um, you know, there are a lot of Westmoreland books, but the... They are almost all, when I think, when I make a list, they are almost all people who we have interviewed for Trailblazers. And I think it's because there are so many really fabulous entry points to these series. Yes. And so Here, more, yeah. every time there's a new book, more people can fall in love with the whole world. The whole series. Here's what else I will say, which is, oh, like, I was as I was thinking it's really easy for me to come up with examples of like paranormal series and historical series that I really enjoyed. Mm. I think I have basically turned away from like that kind of series experience in contemporary. Mm. Like I just, it's like, I just, and part of it too. Now I want to go back to what you were saying about an impossible situation or whatever it was. Right. Right. I think it's very hard to write an impossible situation in our current world. Like that's going to keep people apart. There's a lot of impossible situations we have to figure out how to solve. Right. Right. And so I think part of it, too, is just like my feeling that like the things that would really uh, you need a really big motor to drive that kind of series, that kind. Right. The one that can sprawl out endlessly or you just need like really likable people in a big family. Well, or you need a really terrific writer. Sure. I mean, that's, uh, again, anytime we have these conversations, everyone, like, everything gets thrown out the window in the hands of, like, a terrific writer. Of course. Right? Of course. Um, Of course. Always. Fearlessness. Always, always. Fearlessness helps. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Max Monroe, authors of Accidental Attachment. Max and Monroe are a writing team that writes contemporary romance, and I am obsessed with the idea of this book. Why? Because our heroine, Brooke Baker, starts off from small-town Ohio. Who doesn't love a small-town Ohioan? She heads to New York, and here's the part that's great. She has a super dreamy new editor, and instead of sending him the full-length paranormal novel she promised, she accidentally sends him the fan fiction that she wrote about her crush, and that would be him, Chase Dawson. Uh, not I'm clicking this right now immediately right so here's the part that is great he of course is completely oblivious to the fact that he is the one in the manuscript what a dummy Uh, completely so if you want to see Brooke and Chase figure it out forbidden workplace romance a secret crush gets revealed friends to lovers and also a very cool service dog which I think quite a few of our readers love a dog in a romance so you should definitely check out accidental attachment you can find accidental attachment and all of max monroe's books on amazon in print and ebook and audio or with a monthly subscription to kindle unlimited 
And special for Faded Mates listeners, if you stay tuned at the end of the episode, you'll get a sneak peek of the audiobook of Accidental Attachment. Thanks to Max Monroe for sponsoring the episode. You can't deny right now that contemporary is the most popular subgenre right now. I mean, it is the genre that is, it is a subgenre that is selling books and keeping readers and bringing readers to the genre, to romance. And so I am curious about this because I think that um, people who love contemporary romance are, especially new readers, are are having difficulty kind of mining the like large swath. Oh, yeah, of sure. What's out there? And so they read, you know, say they come via Emily Henry, right? So they read Emily and then they read, you know, maybe Christina and Lauren and maybe they read Tessa Bailey because these are the books that are, you know, at the front of right. Barnes and Noble. Out there, right. But how do you dig deeper into the field how do you get deeper into the forest so do you have a contemporary series that you think of as like this is a great one i do but i don't think it's like really answering that question necessarily and i i think one of the things so i don't know if i should talk about it yet or we should like maybe you'd have one Mm. i mean i think and i've talked about bella andre a number of times before but I think that if you are looking for a very solid contemporary series that will tell uh, differing stories, uh, each story you know does tell does have a different conflict, a different threat, a different situation. Um, you would be hard pressed to do better than Bella Andre's Sullivan series. And one of the reasons why I thought about her for this, I have often talked about Bella, and I my favorite of her books is actually not a Sullivan book, so I have often talked about a different series. Um, but the Sullivan series is a huge family. It'll give you that. It'll deliver you that Bridgerton feel, that sort of sense mm-hmm. of I want to meet every one of these characters and watch each of these siblings fall in love. They are all it is a family of extremely wealthy, extre- or they're not all wealthy. Like one's a firefighter, but he lives in like a penthouse apartment in San Francisco. I don't know. Romance reasons. Who cares? They're totally all affordable. like every one of them is like the top of their game. And each one of them is, and not one of them is married. <laughs> They're all in their 30s. No one's locked down. It's the best. I, Jenny Holiday once had a really funny tweet where she was like, the biggest like funny thing about romance is the idea that like no one has ever found a partner and then they will, but in a prescribed order, one at a time, <laughs> no, over, you know, no overlap, exactly. just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> exactly. And so... um, so I think – so there's, you know, the guy who owns the vineyard and the professional baseball player and the firefighter and the, you know, you know the movie star. One of them looks like – like one of them is literally – it's like a major – imagine a family. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever. Part of the joy of this family is that there is no – I mean, Bella knows the job, right? Like she knows. Nobody cares. Like I don't care that the odds of there being one professional base, major league baseball player and a movie star and a vineyard owner and a like hot firefighter all in one family is like fully impossible. I don't care. Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> um so I love that. I love this series. It gives me a lot of joy. It's a real comfort series for me. Um I do have favorites among it, but but I think you'd be really happy 
with any of yeah. the books in this series. Read um, yeah. And, you know, as I was just talking, the other thing I wanted to say is I think this is why sports romances are so popular right now. Mm. You know, right okay. now, everyone yeah. is talking about hockey. And um, I mean, so much so that I have a friend who does not write romance. And she called me the other day and she was like, I was talking to my agent about what I should do next. And she said I should write a hockey book. And I was like, do you read romance novels? She was like, no, but like even the agents are all like, I can move a hockey book any minute. So I don't know if you're out there with a hockey book. Go get yourself an agent. But now's your time to shine, I guess. But like the other obvious thing that we should talk that the obvious series in contemporary Chicago Stars, right? Which is a football team. Yep. And, you know, we've talked at length with Farrah Roshan and others who have written just longstanding, here's a t- right. sports team. Here's a team. You know, yeah. the other thing that it does, and this may lead, this probably leads us into paranormal, uh, is it sets up that sort of brotherhood piece. And, like, you cannot deny that this kind of found family, brothers in arms, whatever, is a- appealing in a patriarchal sense probably to so many of us in terms of romance reading. Yeah. So the series I was going to talk about that's contemporary, and it's this is like my, my I don't really talk a lot about how much I like motorcycle club romances, but I do, um, is, and I think what I want to talk about is there's a Joanna Wilde series, and it's called The Reaper's Motorcycle Club. And the reason I think it's interesting is because, and I believe that I am correct when I say this, although everybody, please feel free to tell me I'm wrong is she she essentially invented the motorcycle club romance the same way that like you know Susan Elizabeth Phillips was like let's let's make a sports team yeah. right the the tying factor and i remember um reading once like her sort of talking about like all the research that she had done like right like it really started off with her mm-hmm. talking to women who were part of this world and really like figuring out like what, and maybe it was actually, it might've been in one of the um, like literally inside one of the books themselves, like where she was kind of like, let me explain to you like what, where this came from. I also, the thing that I do think about that contemporary does with series maybe is like find new territory pitch a romance tent on right and so in this case um the first book of the series is called reaper's property and it's about a young woman named marie who essentially her brother is in trouble and they live together in like a trailer and her she like has left her abusive husband and her brother is like kind of tangled up with doing i feel like he's maybe He's doing some sort of work for this motorcycle club. I can't remember what it is, like hacking or something, whatever. And they, she meets this guy whose name is Horse. And I was really like, I just remember when I read it the first time being like, I've never read anything like this before. And in the interim, like one of the things I think I've realized about why I like motorcycle club romances is because they are almost always about it's like a, a class issue for me. There's so few romances where poor people are on page. And often this is one where 
where people are often really like living a very tough life. You know, these are people who have job like service jobs, right? They work in convenience stores or they work, you know, as assistants at nurses and things like that. And so um, I I really like this series a lot. I think that it is um, if you have if you are like a motorcycle club fan, but you like it's it's like going back and reading the OG right mm-hmm. in this series. Um, and I think it really grapples with in a way that I think a lot of books now do not how inherently sexism and the patriarchy influences the lives of women in a world where men are part of this like group and they cannot be right. Um, and so I, I just think that it's, it's really like rough and kind of gritty in a way that I think is interesting in a way that a lot of like motorcycle club romances now are just like a, a copy of a copy of a copy. Mm-hmm. Here's here's like the thing that like really drew me in. Um, one of my favorite books there, and there's a lot of like really memorable. I don't know, like I have very. Vi- I think Joanna Wilde is also an amazing writer, and there's a lot of really vivid, like a vivid. Um, interactions between the characters in these books that are like really memorable to me and like one and i is um in one of the books there's it starts with a young woman who is like essentially like a teenage about to give birth and she's really young 19 or 20 and um her boyfriend is this like total jerk and her boyfriend's older brother is the one who like takes her to the hospital she's in labor and she's actually like laboring and she like grabs his shoulders and she is like she grabs him so hard that she leaves like fingerprints on Mm -hmm. him and he is so amazed at like what she is doing that as the fingerprints on him start to fade he goes and has them tattooed on oh that's hot it's hot that's and it's like but it's right and later on she's like why do i love that so much Sarah, because you do. And that's the, this whole series to me is like that, right? Like it's it's like he was like, I didn't want to forget how it felt to have this woman like doing this amazing thing in front of me. And like like it it and really like was using him. It's so visceral, oh, right? That's that she hot. is right. That's so clever, too. Exactly. And 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 I mean, I vividly remember this scene. And then, of course, later, like years later. Right. She's like, what is this? And he's like, it's you. And she puts her hands on him and realizes (gasps) like it's her. I mean, listen. So this these books just really like worked for me at every level. Um, if you are interested in, so that one was, sorry, everybody, Reaper's Legacy. I mean, Motorcycle Club, we, it's the, it's, it's in, it's on the branch with Dark and Mafia and like these kind of clubs, these like clubs of darkness. I think now like dark romance is expanded and we would like kind of put it in that world. But back when I first read it, I had never read anything like that. I mean, it doesn't predate Mafia. It feels like Mafia has always been around, but. Sure, sure. Right. It's kind of like the inverse of the Navy SEALs. Like, you know, there's a chain of command, but they're outlaws, right? Like they don't fit into society. And then when you think about like, what would it mean to be a woman in this world? 
what is the kind of like safety and security it offers at the same time? Like, what is the cost you pay? Mm-hmm. I think that that series really grappled with that in a way that for me, it was very powerful. And I have read every single book in the series multiple times. That's another good example of like that sort of brotherhood or like community, that sort of community that really comes from a shared experience is mm-hmm. a really paranormal vibe. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Anne-Marie Boyle, author of Love Me Like a Love Song. Okay, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but one of my very favorite tropes ever in all media, not just (laughs) romance, is two people who are washed up in the same business have to work together to succeed. I can see that you would love that. I love it. So this is what we're getting here in Love Me Like a Love Song, which is the first book in Amory Boyle's Story Hill Musicians series, which now has three novels and two novellas. So you can get this and then sail through the whole series. So the heroine... Grace is a uh, songwriter and she's won Grammy. She was incredibly popular. She uh, she couldn't lose. And she's married to a rock star who died. Um, and now she is kind of trying to deal with the fact that her husband died and the fact that basically everybody in the whole world is like, oh, she doesn't have it anymore. Like she was only skilled because she only had talent because of him. It was all him. Simultaneously, Andrew Hayes is just like, a he is a young up and coming rock star or he's in a band a young up and coming band and he is attempting to write original songs for his band's upcoming album and it's not going so great and his record label is like maybe we should hire somebody to like do this important job because you don't seem to be able to hack it and so they throw Grace and Andrew together and basically say the two of you have to work together to make an album that will sell. Good luck. Figure it out. And if if you fail, you're both out of the club. So, of course, they have to work together. And they're both resentful of having to work together. I bet they hate each other for it. And they fall in love. If you are interested in musicians moving on after loss, enemies to lovers, and an age gap where she is older, you can check out Anne-Marie Boyle's Love Me Like a Love Song. It is available in print and in E, and you can follow um, our author, Anne-Marie Boyle, on Instagram. Thanks for sponsoring this week's episode. I have another reason why I think Paranormal lends itself really well to a big series. And I mean, Which when is, we say big series, we're talking about, you know, t- series that go over 15, 25, sometime, sometimes 30 years. Yeah. Um, and that many books or more. And I think for me, it's like evil can never be defeated. Yeah. Right. And therefore that there's always high stakes. There's always someone to be fought. There's always a new villain. Yeah. And people are going to have to band together to fight that villain. Like, I think that paranormal in that way has its roots in the same place that horror comes from. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think, like, magic makes... Because all paranormal leans 
in some way on magic, right? So I think magic makes it more possible for Mm -hmm. there to be different kind, you know, evil is the relentless threat, right? But if magic gives us impossible situations again and again. Um, And so in every scenario, there is this kind of sense of like literally anything could happen in this book. The the limitations are only, the books are only limited by the author's imagination. Um, Right. And so I think the series that I had forgotten to talk about when we did our vampire episode, I want to correct now because perfect. Um, we did not talk about Lindsay Sands during that episode, and it was a mistake. It was a, it was an oversight <laughs> um, because I actually don't really know how you talk about vampires without talking about Lindsay. Um, the Arginos, right? Is that what? Yeah, it is? the Argino series, which started in two thousand and four. Um, and is now up to, I just checked on Goodreads, 42 stories. Oh so that's wow. 36 books and I don't know what, six novellas. Um, and that is, and it's all vampires. And it began, what's fascinating about this to me is, so Lindsay predates the boom of, or sort of, the is right a little bit. Yeah. just before. So we talked about we talked about Christine. We talked to Christine Fian, and she started in 1999. Lindsay comes, you know, pretty soon thereafter with, um, you know, with Argonaut, which with vampires, and mm-hmm. then immediately following Lindsay, like boom, paranormal is huge, and uh, and everybody is writing it, and so she started this series with vampires. Lindsay is also a historical writer. Her Highland Bride series is now over ten books. She's written other series too, and now she writes both Argonaut and uh, Highlander books. But these, <laughs> the Argonaut series is a delight. It actually began. Jen, the first few of them had those. Do you remember when, like, Mass Market did illustrated covers? Like, they tried it before. Yes. Yes. And these books, the first one, um, one of them is called, one of the early ones is called A Love Bites. And it has, like, a little drawing of a bat, like, holding a rose (laughs) in its mouth, I want to say. Or, like, a heart in its mouth. I don't know. It's holding something red in its mouth. Anyway, I mean, it's really charming. The The early books, Lindsay's a great writer. The early books edge up on rom-com in the sense that, like, the stories are actually very amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, my favorite, I think we've talked about Single White Vampire before on the podcast, or if we haven't, that's a mistake. But uh, the main character. We have. Yeah, the main Is character. Is this one the dentist? No. No. That's, Car- that's Carolyn That's something Sparks. different, yeah. Um, single white vampire, the main character is a vampire who is a pretending to be a romance novel. Oh, pretending. He's masquerading as a romance novel. I guess he's not masquerading. Let me think. He's he is a romance novelist, but um he has uh he is just telling he's telling the biographies, he's writing the biographies of his family, of like the vampire history. And so, you know, he's but he's super famous now and he hates going to like book events and um, he falls in love with his new romance editor, like the person who is assigned to his books. It's so cute. 
That's called Single White Vampire. And she's, if you all like grumpy sunshine, like there really isn't anything more grumpy oh, yeah, it's so perfect. than an yeah. ancient vampire who's trying to write serious biographies of his family, but they have been deemed paranormal romance. And he's like chirpy, <laughs> like, <laughs> like editor. Um. Anyway, but the series continues on and it, you know, like I said, it's so long. The The voice of the series starts to change. Some of the books are darker. Some of the, like, there's really, if I think that's the other thing about these long series that I'm so drawn to is you really can, when somebody's staying in the same universe, you can really see how they're writing and the way that they think about the world is evolving. And I mean, I see that in my own books, like as a writer, I can see the difference in the series as I've moved forward. Um, But it's such a cool thing when you've been with a series for 15 years and people are taking new risks and changing the way they tell stories. So this is a nice transition to a very spoilery part of the episode, everybody, because I am going to talk about the Black Dagger Brotherhood. Oh, boy. So... This series, so yes. Now, here's the thing that's been really interesting, right? So, I will confess that I read maybe the first four or five. Um, oh my gosh, actually, this is amazing. One of our listeners, Alice, sent me the first like six of them, like in paperback from like when she had them back in the day. I've like, of course, at one point was like, I have them on Kindle. I'll just get rid of all of them. And then I was like, what was I thinking? So thank you, Alice. And now I'm going to totally dive back in. I know. So nice. Right. So anyway, and then I will admit that like my reading of the interim 15 or whatever have been pretty spotty. Um, I, I know that you're supposed to read them all. I don't care. Like, I will read the ones I want. I will skip the ones I don't. I will read them out of order. I am a chaos demon when it comes to all that. Who cares? Well, they're also, I don't know if she's still, I haven't read one recently, but is she still structuring them where, like, then there's a pair, there's a section where it's, you can skip around? <laughs> well, now, Sarah, let me tell you. So here's kind of one of the problems, at least with the Black Dagger Brotherhood, is as time has gone on, she is just like keeping every single one of those characters in the air, right? Like they just are all continuing and you read them and it's just like, it's not even really like the main romance is the main plot anymore. There's just like a bunch of different stuff happening and it's just all going on and on and on and on. Like it's, a, it's, and that's, I think probably why I got overwhelmed. I was like, you know, I'm just a well, simple woman. Well, this can right? be a real challenge in these long series. Yes. Uh-huh. So listen, Lassiter is the new one. Okay, again, everybody, if you are at all going to read this and no one like the next chapter, brothers, skip. If, however, you're like, I'm real curious about what she's going to say, I don't care, spoilers, because I am back in it in a big way after reading Lassiter, Sarah, because at the end of this book, she kills off Wrath <gasps> and fast forwards 30 years. What? Yes. <laughs> I was like, wait, what, what the fuck did I just read? So then, no, wait, the, wait, Jen. No, when no, Sarah, came, hold on. No, I'm not done. No, oh I'm God. not done. So then at, what happens at the end is Wrath then essentially knocks on the door and reappears, not right? Not dead. 
But the whole Black Dagger Brotherhood has been essentially destroyed. We don't really know what's been going on with it. They've all like they're living a sad life on her own in a house. Like they don't live at the mansion anymore. Everything is sort of gone. So I was like, holy. She just rebooted. She re-fucking booted. And you know what? I admire it because she must have been feeling bogged down in it. And so then she's like, look, I'm just going to reboot this entire motherfucker, right? I do. I cannot tell you the last time I had a romance novel like knock me on my ass like that. Where I was like, I mean, Sarah, I'm not kidding. I was like, wait, did I just read that? I literally went back. I was like, I clearly did not read that right. I'm in a fever dream. Yeah. Amazing. Good for her. But I really do think like it, it you know what? Here's my thing is like if you are gonna keep a long searing sear long running series running. Yeah. H- how? How? It's hard. And here's the thing. You can see, I mean, I'm just gonna say it out loud. You can see it when they get tired. Yep. And they're yep. now just writing it for money. And so yes. I think so here's what I want to say. Can we talk about historicals now? Yes. Okay, because I, in my opinion, historicals, there are two examples of historical series that I think do this, like, long-running, really rewarding um, series idea very well, but they both have a finite ending. And I think uh, that is, I think that is critical (laughs) often. Um, Right. Particularly in historical, I just I struggle with and it just keeps going. Right. Um, I want to talk about and again, another name that I feel like we don't say enough or maybe ever, but I want to talk about Sabrina Jeffries. Oh, interesting. OK, great. And interestingly, this series also began right at the same time as Lindsay Sands's Argonaut series. But in 2004, wow. I mean, in those early aughts, Sabrina Jeffries was writing like Everybody yeah. it felt like, you know, you were reading like Julia Quinn and Lisa Claypas sure. and Sabrina Jeffries. And she was just like one of the names that was like, you know, roaming, rolling around at the top of the heap. Um, and this series is, I think, why the her School for Heiresses series um, is about. So it's about a, an heiress, Charlotte, who. um premise of the series is that there is an heiress charlotte who has eloped with a soldier who then gets himself killed in a duel um and she is left with zero dollars or pounds no money whatsoever and so she decides that what she's going to do is out of commitment to her uh, her her sisters in the world um, she's going to start a school where wealthy young women, because, of course, Charlotte was very wealthy and her dumb dude who got killed in a duel spent all of her money um, after they were married. She is going to protect other young heiresses and help them avoid the same fate. OK, so this is a very like structurally like we've all read these books before. Right. So each book, the structure is the same. There is an heiress who is a member of like the school, a student at the school for heiresses. Every chapter begins with a letter 
from Charlotte to her mysterious benefactor, who is only referred to as Cousin Michael. Okay? And Cousin Michael and Charlotte write letters back and forth. She's never met him. All she, but he, you know, he refers to himself as her cousin Michael. And so there are, I don't know, 10 books in this series. Each one has the same exact structure. And the final book is Charlotte. And you finally figure out who Michael is. Ooh, that's great. And it's really, and I can remember, and Jen, I mean, I know you've had these this feeling. Of this course. is like such a classic romance, very specific to romance, to genre readers, I think, is like every time a new one of these books would come out, you know, you would immediately get it and then you would pour over it as like, who's Michael? You knew immediately, like Michael's, who is Michael? Somebody in these books has to be Michael. Like, which dude, like roaming around in the background is Michael? And then, like, the reward of getting Charlotte's book last and really feeling like you had been given this gift of, like, a whole series that you could go back to the beginning of and start fresh. Ah, what a treat. That's awesome. Um, You know, a, an interesting way of doing a long-running series where you really are not, like, tying yourself up into knots is – I always thought it was really clever the way Christy Caldwell used that necklace in the heart of a Duke series. And I don't know if you've read these, but basically, like, it's this, like, good luck necklace. And when a spinster or a wallflower, like, puts it on, then she, like, finds, of course, you know, I love it. And I love a little magic thing. Yeah. And you know what's great about it is I for sure have not read all the books in the series. I can tell you that. And I bet in the first book. The necklace is like really like, I don't know, like, right? Like you're getting the exposition on this necklace. The first one I read was like, I don't know, probably book 17 or whatever. And I was like, oh, I bet that necklace is magic. I just knew it. Even <laughs> with like, no, you know what I mean? Like even with yeah. no whatever. And I think one of the things that's really clever about that is you can assor- essentially like go in any direction you want, right? Because the the thing that's tying it all together isn't like the family or the people or the timeline or any of that it's just the necklace itself I love um, it. right it's you know taking the clapis ta- ta- talisman idea and just blowing right, it right yeah. exactly i so love it that's a really really smart way to do it too i want to talk about lauren willig because and everybody's about to just lose their mind because it's a spy series and it's The only spy series I have ever been able to read all the way through. So here we are. Um, Lauren Willig's Pink Carnation series, I think, is a very similar kind of uh, structured series. It's set in Napoleon, in like early Napoleonic Britain. um, And it is, it's really charming. And I don't think Lauren would, would, I think Lauren has, has been very upfront about how this, this series came to be. She is one of us, Jen. She grew up reading, like, all the old school romances, like, can go na- book for book with you if you have a drink with her. <laughs> Next time you're in New York, we should. I love and it. And she was in graduate school, and she decided she wanted to write a romance novel for fun, and she wrote a historical romance novel and took it to, like, a friend of a friend who had an agent and ended up with an agent who was, like, 
I don't, I don't do romance, but right now, like Bridget Jones and Chicklet is very popular. So is there a way for you to turn this historical spy romance <laughs> into something that would be more appealing for a Chicklet reader? And so she was like, mm, I guess I could write like a rapper, like a contemporary rapper around it. So this series is really clever, I think, because it's structured as it, you. the book begins with you meeting Eloise, who is a contemporary American who is doing her PhD work in uh, at Oxford on a very particular spy, um, sort of Scarlet Pimpernel style spy um, in history. And so she and no one knows the true identity of the spy. The character's name is the Pink Carnation. And no one knows who this person is, but there is speculation that it is one particular man from history. So she who was an Earl or I don't know, had a title. So Eloise is trying very hard to get access to the family documents. So, like she wants to go to this like big country house, think like, you know, Mr. Darcy style. Um, and she wants to have access to their like private documents so that she can essentially finish her dissertation. Um, and she goes out there and, of course, the like hot air to this like old dude who to this now dead dude who she thinks was the pink carnation his name is colin and she's like instantly drawn to him and we are thrown into like the contemporary romance rapper right instantly and then he like agrees to give her access to the family papers and she starts to read them and the family papers sink us into the historical series which goes on for i think a while now, well, right? it's done now. Um, which goes on for 12 books and four novellas. Um, and the first three, but it's fascinating, right? Because for a little while, there is a question of like, who is the pink carnation is a sort of driving question of the series. And then it sort of becomes, then it becomes clear, like, who the pink carnation is. It's a woman, which is very cool. It's not the person she thought it was, although he too was a spy. And then it's like all the different spies in the network. So like each book is like about one of them, the Mask of the Black Tulip and then the Emerald Ring and the Crimson Rose and the Night Jasmine and everybody has like a, you know, whatever. It's very far reaching. It roams all over the world because of the Napoleonic era and like Napoleonic Wars. And then every book you get more of Colin and Eloise, just like a layer, like more and more and more. And so they have this sort of, contemporary romance going on over the top and the question is like what will happen with colin and eloise um it ends like in book 12 and it has this like really lovely ending of both series and you know lauren now writes historical fiction and doesn't write romance anymore but these are this is a really lovely series um it's not super sexy um, and you can definitely see the kind of the bones of what Lauren is about to become as a writer of her love for historical fiction. Um, but if you are just looking for a really delightful read, this is 12 books that you can't, you'll enjoy. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing about a series. And I think about this a lot 
because I'm a middle school teacher, <laughs> which is, you know, like kids love a series, right? Like they just want to spend time with these favorite characters again. I I think that's a big appeal of it. You know, just the feeling that like this whole world is together and you know you've said it before is like you know you want to see your favorite couple dancing by in the background right and you know those are I think that really does keep keep people going I mean so I think the thing that's really hard though and you know we haven't talked about it is like the series where like the buildup is so big that the last book doesn't satisfy you like there's danger to it too sure right I mean Think about Lothair, right? I mean, I didn't read Cressley when Lothair was coming out, but I, and I'm sure I told this. I'm I'm I probably have told this story. I probably told it when we were doing the Lothair episode in season one. But my sister was such a huge Immortals After Dark fan that like she had Lothair on her calendar. It was like the biggest day of her year, and the book was great. What if it hadn't been? <laughs> what if it hadn't been, right? I mean, and that's that's the part where, like, I admire, like, kind of the idea that if you're going to have a really long-running series, you have to think differently about structure, right? I mean, so you either have to be willing to, like, put an end to it, right? Like, I mean, like, a, the Kate Daniel series is just 10 books, and now there's sort of a spinoff series that has, like, one of the other characters is the main character, I think. That's something Alona Andrews does really well. You know, the Hidden Legacy series, it's like each, there's three sisters, presumably, you know, the first two sisters have each had three books. Each book is a discrete story with like a big kind of enemy, you know, and so you can sort of like, but, you know, you get the, you so you get all that family stuff, but it doesn't feel like it's going to go on forever. And I mean, our friend B in her books like just knew that like the middle series she's like it's gonna be three books and i'm gonna wait till they're all out like some people just don't have it in them to wait and like read one and just kind of wait until the next one comes so i mean i think the other thing about high stakes series is it's hard sometimes and i think the other thing and we've talked about this when we talked about iad is you know the romance world changes frequently what readers want changes frequently Going back to an old series or a series you loved five years ago or 10 years ago, you're like, who knows what I'm going to find in there? And so I think the other reason it's really hard to keep a long running series going. And, you know, Christine Fien was just like, I don't care. Right. I can't worry about that is that reader care and feeding part. What they wanted in book one is not what they want in book 10 is not what they want in book 20. And I, I, Sometimes I kind of wish authors would just like write the ultimate book and like tie it all up and be done with it because sometimes I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm done, right? Yeah. This is where art and business kind of collide. collide. Yeah. And that's and I understand it. I mean, the truth is right. So when you think about I wrote the the series about a casino and there is a giant twist that actually you don't you don't even know it's coming until it's yeah, come. no. Um, until it's there. And I knew from the beginning that at the end of book three, there was going to be a big twist. And then book four was going to be the final book because 
I would no longer have anything to say. I will have done the complete. <laughs> You've done it. Art. Yeah. If that series had landed like hugely and my publisher had come to me and said, we want five more books. Yeah. I don't know how to say I no. would have done it, but I yeah. would have done it in some way. Sure. Probably. Sure. I mean, like, of course, it's a business, too. Right. I like money. <laughs> so I I'm sympathetic to it but I do think yeah. all of these people and you know I think about I think you know yes we've talked about people who ended the series because they ended the series because they had said the things they wanted to say we've talked about J.R. Ward rebooting it you know I think Cressley started to reboot when she brought in the um the Morior and I don't know what's going to come I don't know if we're ever coming back to them and then you know, so I think we've seen lots of different people do try and tackle this in different ways. Um, but I think that there is a lot of power for readers in long running series. There is no joy better than, you know, what's fascinating is when I sometimes, you know, when Kindle, you can sometimes turn on like calm, like popular highlights. The popular oh, yeah. fiction function, which I always have turned off, but every once in a oh, while, I like, I'll reboot off, yeah. it or whatever, and like suddenly they're yeah, all. Yeah, you there. get a new Kindle, and all of a sudden you're like, "Wait, what's all this?" And not what's interesting is that often the most popular highlight as you're reading a new book is like a reference to a couple. Oh, interesting. Um, like interesting, and it'll yeah. say like, you know, you'll be reading. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's true of my books, too, but, you know, you'll be reading, I don't know, bomb. Sh- you'll be reading Heartbreaker and it'll say Cecily and Caleb like on the page. And it's just underlined like that's the that's popular it. highlight. Interesting. And it's because yeah. they're making a note to themselves as readers like, oh, I want to I want to go back to that one. I want to go back to this. Yeah. I get it. I get There's it. I really do. better than knowing than finding a new. I mean. Yeah. God. Then reading like. Man, like, there reading is a wallflower better. novel and then being like, oh, my God, there are so many more in this series. Yeah, right. There's nothing better. And you know what? Also, I feel like as an author, there's probably nothing worse <laughs> than when those readers are like, but wait, what about? What like, about what, Benedict? I mean, I'm, what about Benedict? What about Enid? Right. What about the people you want? And that's hard. I mean, I feel like that's the part, too. It's like it. it that's a knife that definitely cuts both ways. I mean... Yeah, I joke about it, but the truth is, like, every time somebody says to me, but what about every – it's a question in every every panel yeah. I'm ever on, that's that's right. going to be a question. And I – but it's like – I mean, I feel really grateful. I really yeah, do. Course, I mean, the fact course, that yeah. there is some – there are so many people out there who just want that one book. Who love that. It's hard. Yeah. I, I doubt there are many of us who really resent those questions. Yeah, what I, I feel it's bad amazing. about is that my answer – I feel bad about disappointing you. My answer is no. Yeah. It's never going to happen. So. Benedict happy. That's He's why everybody – so happy. And let him be, everyone. <laughs> it must have been offline one day where I was like, yeah, but what if his first wife died? Oh, and I then know. And he's miserable. And you were like, shut up, Jennifer. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Stop now. Anyway – so that's our feeling well, about series. Yeah. Are there any like recent series that you're excited about that you're excited about the next one of? You know who I think about all the time is Kristen Callahan. 
I like that. I like that Rockstar series a lot. I really love, yeah, the Stage Dive series by Kylie Scott. And the way that she has been revisiting it is with those, yeah. you know, that 1001 Nights yep. series. Sometimes, and those even Joanna Wilde. Sometimes that's where, like, the novella from a series you love ends up or shows up. Mm-hmm. And so those, keep an eye out for those. Those are kind of interesting. Um... Are there any series? I mean, I feel like we have, because of where we've come from as readers, Jen, I feel like often when we talk about our favorite books of, like, current books, we're always talking about series. You know, Alexis Daria, Adriana Herrera, Diana Quincy, Joanna Shoup. I think, listen, Theodora Taylor knows how to really do a series, I will say. There's a woman who gets what I'm looking for. Odette Stone. My problem with Theodore Taylor, sometimes they're like single books and sometimes they're two books. So I'm never sure like which way. You know what I mean? Like if there's a cliffhanger or not. So sometimes I have to do my research with her. Um, God, a series I remember just like waiting for when Molly O'Keefe was writing that one series that was like it started with everything I left unsaid and the truth about him. That series was... I I was I just remember being like time will not pass. <laughs> I, here I am just waiting. Right? Waiting. Um knockout is coming. Now I've had the pleasure of Oh knockout it. my book knockout. You're knockout you dummy. Yes, and everybody Tommy Go Boom is so that's coming. So yeah, that's We'll do a full episode a about it everyone. We don't have coming. to <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more. It'll be the week of August 22nd. You'll hear that whole episode. (laughs) I've been like taking notes because I just think about it all the time. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's that I will say as as a writer writing a series, especially when you're like me and you're writing a series where, you know, you have a surprise. Yeah. And now, I mean, that's not even a spoiler for readers like anybody who's read any of my series knows there's always there's always something cooking. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always fun. Like knowing that you're about to deliver the, the surprise that you have thought, been thinking about for years is great. I would say like, you know, I have an author who's just like, this is a solid author writing books. I really like an example of that for me is Farrah Heron. Um, I really, I just really like her books a lot and you know, they're just like really solid good reads. I'm always really happy to read them. But like her newest one that comes out in a couple of weeks is called Jana Goes Wild. I've mentioned it before. And and I was like, oh, good, a new fair hair. And it's, you know, I read an arc of it. And I was like, I love it. And that is also like a really fun where you're just like when a like a solid performer all of a sudden hits that home run. I mean, that's the thing about romance. Like, you just never know what's going to really like ring your bell. And that's exciting too. I mean, I think that's why we chase series, but we chase authors too. All right. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Please tell us about your favorite series, the ones you love, the ones you didn't love or disappointed. I'm sure you will take it. I mean, not um, if they're the mine. Ones, yeah, except if they're Sarah. <laughs> the ones you can't wait for the next one of. Uh, we just love to hear about it. Thanks also to Anne-Marie Boyle and Max Monroe for sponsoring the episode this and week. special for Faded Maids listeners. If you stay tuned.
Spending a week with a serial killer, a car-crushing interstate pileup, and deadline day. This may not seem like a list of events you'd group together, but the truth is, they all have a bevy of horrible things in common. Bloodshed, tears, begging to be put out of your misery. I realize that may sound a tad dramatic to say about a writing deadline, but I'm in the pits of deadline hell and I won't apologize for it. I'm a writer, a novelist. It's my duty to paint a portrait with my words, to reel a reader into my web of description in such a way that they'll never escape its clutches. This is what I do. And normally, I revel in the task. In the past, I've even been praised and awarded for it. I've been on the New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestseller lists, have topped the charts on online retailers like Amazon and iBooks, and was awarded Author of the Year by the Authors Guild two years ago. I have three of the most successful books of the last decade with one of the biggest publishers in the United States, Long Strand Publishing, and have even become somewhat of a household name, thanks to an upcoming show on Netflix about my first series. At least, that's what you'd learn about me if you took to Google. My Wikipedia page is just one big, everyone come see how great Brooke Baker is, commentary, but none of it even scratches the surface. On the inside, I'm a no-good, talentless hack, and the book I'm about to turn into my new editor at Longstrand might as well find a home at the bottom of the Staten Island dump. In defense of my inward-pointing offensiveness, writers are known for being self-deprecating, no matter how successful they might be on paper. Pretty sure it's part of the job description. Still, this book is a piece of crap. Frustrated, I huff out a breath, shove away from my keyboard, and stand. But in the process, I bump into my sweet German shepherd, Benji, who's curled up at my feet. The abrupt motion propels me forward into a running fall. Shit, Benji, I mutter as I bang my foot on the coffee table, do a 360 spin, and finally come to a stop when my lower back slams into the edge of the sofa just as my Dolly Parton CD gets to the crescendo about a woman named... Jolene. Dramatically, I let myself slide to the hardwood floor of my apartment and release a long exhale when my ass gently hits the floor. The motion makes my glasses slide to the bridge of my nose and I reach up to adjust them on my face. Benji stands up, crooking his head in concern. His ears perk up and his snout alarms into a frown, but the Batman costume he's currently sporting makes it hard to see him as anything but adorable. Note to self, Benji in a Batman costume is impossible to get annoyed with, even when he sends me careening across my apartment like I'm a stunt woman in the movie Jackass. I might be biased, but my furry buddy is a superhero, and I always make sure he's dressed the part. His closet is nearly as big as mine, containing every superhero outfit from DC to Marvel, because we don't choose one over the other in this household. We are superhero connoisseurs who don't discriminate. From Batman to Thor, we are fully inclusive. Okay, Batman Benji, I say, looking into his big and assessing brown eyes. I'm going to overlook this little problem we just had because, first of all, you're so dang cute I can't even stand it. And secondly, the number of times you've saved my life far outweighs this endangerment. 
He tilts his head to the side and I get to my feet and walk toward him, because I can't resist giving my canine superhero a rub down. Plus, he always lies at my feet when I'm riding. Always. So, it shouldn't have been a surprise, and therefore shouldn't have caused me to nearly split my head open. Sorry, buddy. I apologize and scratch between his ears. I am not myself tonight. You know that. I'm in severe emotional distress about the fact that I'm a piece of garbage writer. Thank goodness for the Netflix deal on the Shadow Brothers, huh? Otherwise, I'd be worried about keeping us in kibble. I head toward the kitchen, intent on pouring myself a glass of wine as my CD ticks over to the next song, Living on Memories of You. As Dolly sings about a lack of sunshine during both day and night, I'm reminded why Dolly Parton, to me, is life. Thanks to my fun, not fun at all, medical condition otherwise known as vasovagal syncope, I'm always one anxiety-ridden meltdown from passing out. And let me tell you, living in that kind of vacuum can turn someone cynical. Dolly's music, though, I've decided, always has an answer. I'm not obsessive or anything, but one of the rules of my house is that Dolly's CDs always take priority over other music. A new song comes out that Benji really likes to jam to, great. But as the sun sets and the wine kicks in, Dolly's coming back. You really can't beat paying the price of a CD for therapy. And yes, I'm a 31-year-old woman who still buys CDs and plays them from a 90s-style boombox I found at a second-hand shop years ago. I'm nostalgic like that. A time-life dream customer, if you will. I swing open the cabinet and pull out the bottle of Pinot Noir I just bought yesterday. It's not long before I have a glass filled and I'm taking my first, and very much needed, sip of wine. Benji's paws tip-tap across the floor as he meanders into the kitchen and finds a spot beside the island to lie down. However, I can tell he's making sure his eyes are on me at all times. But that's his job. He's my service dog. Basically, vasovagal syncope is a neurological condition that involves a drop in my blood pressure, heart rate, or both at the same time, and sends me into a brief but severely inconvenient loss of consciousness. It can happen when I'm sitting or standing or walking or talking or pretty much doing anything at all. And for many years, I had to manage recognizing the signs and symptoms myself in order to do something about it before catastrophe struck. My success rate was marginal at best. Enter Benji. Five years ago, just about a year after my divorce from my ex-husband, Jamie, my four-legged friend came into my world and changed my life forever. My superhero canine knows when my blood pressure and heart rate drop way before I do and makes sure I do something about it before I whack my head on the floor. He's a literal lifesaver. And now, after almost half a decade together, he's also my best friend. A little pathetic, sure, that the main man in my life has paws and a propensity for drooling whenever the smell of meat is in the air, but I swear I've never met a human who outshines him. He's a great listener. He's calm, cool, and collected. And as made obvious tonight by his new Batman costume, he looks aces in pleather. I don't know when or why I started putting Benji in superhero costumes, but it just kind of happened. 
And it's gotten to the point where it doesn't feel right, unless he's Iron Man or Superman or any of the other mans that dominate the superhero stratosphere. You know, Benj, you almost look risque in that getup. It's probably good that we're testing it out at home before we take it to the streets. I wouldn't want you attracting the wrong kind of attention. He groans and I hold up a hand defensively. I swear I won't be a nightmare mother-in-law when you meet your soulmate, but I need her to be at least a little respectable. Kind, understanding, doesn't bark after midnight, that kind of thing. He woofs lightly at a volume that doesn't anger the neighbors, and I smile. I know, dating is hard for me too. But we're going to find our happily ever afters eventually. I'm sure of it. I'm not sure of it, but I heard you're supposed to put the things you want out into the universe, positive reinforcement or manifestation or whatever they call it on TikTok. Truthfully, I'm making exactly zero progress on the love life front, Pretty sure I can count on one hand the number of dates I've had since my divorce from my childhood sweetheart six years ago. Jamie and I got married at 23, right after graduating from Middle Ohio University, and spent two mediocre years trying to criticize each other into different people. I wish I could say there was some big cataclysmic event that broke us up, but sometimes the biggest changes come out of living a life with no change at all. We lived in small-town Ohio, going to the same jobs, seeing the same people day after day. And for my ex-husband, that meant contentment. It was peace. It was comfort. Unfortunately for me, the longer I sat behind my desk at the high school with my plaque that said, school counselor, the more I felt like I was coming out of my skin. He was a good guy with good intentions, but good intent doesn't always equate to good results. In the end, it led to resentment from him and me, and he left the marriage emotionally. I don't have specific evidence that he was cheating, and to be honest, I wouldn't blame him too much if he had been. We were about as much of lovers as a couple of old worn gym socks are haute couture. We were the essence of, it wasn't meant to be. I take another sip of my wine and look down at Benji. We just need to keep trying, that's all. One day we'll find our soulmates. Benji lets out another little woof and tilts his head. I sigh. Don't be like that. Just because I spend 99% of my time here in this apartment, in some form of pajamas with you and the characters inside my head, does not mean I'm not trying. He rests his head on his paws, and I swear, he rolls his eyes at me. Hey, don't be so judgy. You know I have issues putting myself out there. I have a lot going on, you know. I'm pseudo-famous, which is a joke, but I am. And I have very nearsighted eyes and a limited ability to poke my eyeballs with contacts. I put a hand to my hip. On top of that... I have a voyeur dog who has to be with me all the time to make sure I don't pass out and, you know, die. I'm a lot to handle compared to the superfit Insta models with no structured job and the flexibility of an Olympic gymnast. Climbing back into my computer chair like a complicated mix of spider monkey and shriveled old lady, I pull the chunky knit blanket from my ottoman and drape it across my legs. 
It only takes a few clicks to open my manuscript back up and start reading again while Dolly serenades softly in the background. I mouth the words as I read through my final draft of Garden of Forever, hearing the words in my head and picturing them as though my glasses are a portal to a film dimension. But the garden is that of a flower's life cycle, forever and futile all at once. We're here for a good time, not for a long time and all that jazz. Fabian lets out a deep, unsteady exhale, the realization of his demise all-consuming. Life is, after all, life. If only I'd unsheathed my sword when Swanson asked, I might not be here, bleeding into the grass. Dread settles into the base of my neck and shoots pain behind my eyes. I cannot believe my new, hot-as-fuck editor, Chase Dawson, is going to read this pile of garbage as his first taste of me. It doesn't seem fair, and it doesn't seem real. This is awful. Hardly even coherent, if I'm honest. And nothing like my successful first trilogy, The Shadow Brothers. They were pithy and witty and smart. This, this is like something Benji left on the sidewalk for me to pick up. Chase Dawson is going to think I used a ghostwriter for my first series. Either that, or I suffered a very traumatic brain injury in between the publication of those and this. Gah! Garden of Forever and I never found our stride, and I'm saying that after I've written The End and revised this WIP for the past months until I've reached the point that every time I look at it, I feel nauseated. Not a good sign for a book that's supposed to be my next big release after a series that landed me a Netflix deal. I imagine my readers using their copies of Garden of Forever for toilet paper and kindling on cold nights, and it's enough to make me wonder if Longstrand is going to drop me like a bad habit after they read this steaming pile of trash. The thing is, though, it's not like I can't write anything. I know for a fact that my brain still works because any time the block has really gotten me in a bind on Garden of Forever, I've moved over to a different project, a manuscript of a different color, if you will, one that, under no circumstances, is ever to be shown the light of day. On a whim, I minimize the window for Garden of Forever and search my other recent documents. Accidental Attachment my contemporary romance about TV anchor River Rollins and her producer, Clive Watts, isn't far from the top, and consequently, it's only a brief moment before it's open on my screen. Involuntarily, my breasts swell in my tank top, and the pace of my breathing escalates. Clive and River together are hot. The five alarm kind that is a roller coaster of intense passion and emotional devastation, but they're not what my readers are used to. And the inspiration? Well, it comes from a little bit of a personal place. I scroll down into the intro and start to read. Strong, unhurried fingertips lift at the edge of my pencil skirt, scraping it up the skin of my thighs, and my head lolls back. This anchor desk is big and cumbersome, both normally great features that I use to hide my slippers when I have to rush to make live time, and it conceals Clive as he breathes a warm puff of air against the burning flesh beneath my lace panties. 
Today, I'm being naughty, daring, bold, wanton even. I can't wait another second, even as we're about to broadcast live on the air, to feel Clive's mouth against my sensitive skin. He takes his time, tracing his tongue along the hem of my panties. His mouth is warm and intense, and a shock of pleasure rolls up my spine. My hips fidget, and two strong hands grip my thighs, forcing my legs to spread open as far as they can go. Everyone around me is hustling to get in position. Cameras click on, spotlights shine down on me from the ceiling, and the guy behind the teleprompter gets into place. But Clive doesn't stop, and no one else but me is aware of his presence beneath my news desk. The mere thought makes me feel bad, dirty, insane. And it's so arousing that I can feel how wet I am without even touching myself. My fingers clutch at the edge of the desk, and a moan sits at the base of my throat when I feel my panties slide to the side. I can't see Clive, but God, I can feel him. His mouth is right there, hovering over where I ache and throb. My heartbeat has relocated to between my thighs, and a steady bum, bum, bum makes my toes curl inside my heels. Quiet on the set, fills my ears, just as Clive's mouth latches onto me, and the rush of pleasure that floods my veins is so intense, my eyes threaten to roll into the back of my head. And we're live in three, two, one. Even though I know that River is just having the kind of explicitly vivid dreams I've had a time or two about my new editor, Chase Dawson, and not actually getting her vahooch licked live on the evening news. My hands feel clammy, and sweat rests uncomfortably above my top lip. The secondhand embarrassment is almost overbearing. To be honest, I'm one grease and debris smeared t-shirt away from looking like a main character in a Michael Bay movie. I need to walk, take a shot, smoke a cigarette, something although I probably shouldn't do either of the latter two because the last time I took a shot of liquor, I threw up instantly, and since I've never smoked anything in my life, I'm pretty sure I'd just hack myself over the rail of my balcony. But I should definitely do something that gets me away from my computer and dulls the edges of both my unbridled manuscript disgust and my inappropriate lust for my very nice and far too attractive for my own good book editor. I stand up in a huff again, but this time, Benji manages to scoot out of my way. I grab my glass of wine and chug it down for the sole purpose of creating an empty vessel for my next heavy pour. I may not be the kind of woman who can do shots of hard liquor on a Sunday evening without recreating The Exorcist, but by God, I can handle a bottle of wine. After one cold, hard swig from the bottle, I fill my stemware again and take a deep breath and try to reassure myself before I fall off the cliff of crazy. Okay, so it's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, sure, I have a little crush on my editor, but it's completely healthy, I think. Instead of bumbling my way into a sexual harassment suit, I put my feelings to the cursor and, as a bonus, Got to put good practice hours into my writing craft.
Even if the content of accidental attachment is a little off-genre for my career, it's still exercising the sensitive muscles of my creativity. It's honing. It's refining. It's breathing new dimensions into my prose. Right? Right? I look at the time and see it's nearing midnight, which means I have about 40 minutes left of my final deadline day for Garden of Forever. Wow, Brooke, you're really cutting this one close. I puff out a breath that blows a few loose pieces of my brown hair out of my face, and I quickly readjust the messy bun on top of my head, my eyes never leaving my computer screen. This is it. I have to send it. I have no more time left. I look down at Benji, who is in a half-asleep, half-awake phase of his napping by my feet. I should just bite the bullet and do it, huh? I question, and he barely moves his eyes up to meet mine. I could do another thousand read-throughs of Garden of Forever, but it's not going to change anything, Benji. Not to mention, I don't have any more time. He searches my face, but eventually settles his snout back between his paws and lets his eyes start to get heavy again. I imagine this is his way of saying, look, Lady, you handle the writing and I handle the vasovagal syncope. I can't help you here. I take off my glasses, scrub a hand down my face, and sneak another drink of wine before I slip my glasses back on and refocus my attention on the screen. Just do it. Newly determined to put myself out of my misery by turning in my Garden of Forever file, I return to my computer and click frantically on Clive and River's story to minimize it. I don't close it just yet because, well, I have a feeling after I get a little deeper into this wine, I'm going to want to read a little more to settle my mind before I go to sleep. With a few hasty clicks into my email, a trip into my recent documents folder, and a simple search, a list of my files starting with WIP and ending with the title acronyms and dates populates. I don't give myself any wiggle room to rethink my next move and attach Garden of Forever to the email and address the message to my editor, Chase Dawson. Click, click, sent. There, it's done. No more time to dwell. Garden of Forever is officially in Chase Dawson's inbox, and I don't have to think about it anymore. Well, technically, I don't have to think about it until my already scheduled meeting on April 26th with my editor. But minor details. Until then, I think I might sleep for the next 14 days, maybe wake up occasionally to eat takeout and down more wine, and be temporarily oblivious to the fact that I might have to face the career-shattering music that would be my hot editor telling me I'm a rubbish writer and Longstrand can no longer publish me. April 26th can take its sweet time. Chapter 1 Wednesday, April 26th Brooke April 26th came too soon. I sit in a fancy plush cream chair in the waiting area of my editor's office, and my knees bounce with the kind of nervous energy that threatens to catapult me into outer space without needing Jeff Bezos' penis rocket. 
My purse digs into my bag from its awkward spot behind me, and it paints the perfect picture of how anxious I'm feeling about being face-to-face with Chase Dawson again. It's not every day that you diddle your doodle to the distinct image of someone's uber-attractive face to put yourself to sleep every night and then have a professional meeting with them. It's just not that common. I wrestle the offending bag like it's a gator in a swamp, and Benji lifts his head off the carpet quizzically. It's not hard to tell what he's thinking. You, lady, are a psychopath. After three deep breaths in and out to calm my racing heart, I finally manage the transition of my bag from the chair to the floor, and Benji lays his head back down with a soft groan. I know, Benji. I'm annoyed with myself, too. Chase comes around the corner suddenly. Not really, I'm just at DEFCON level one, and I startle in the chair hard enough to make it rock onto its back legs. I swear I see Benji roll his eyes from the floor, but he doesn't bother to pick up his head. Saving his energy, I presume, for when I'm interacting with my crush, and he has to be on alert to make sure I don't pass out. Or if I do pass out, make sure I do it with the kind of grace that prevents head contusions and stitches. Chase doesn't notice me at first, which is probably for the best, and I try to remind myself that a lady shouldn't gawk or have drool dripping out of her mouth. Good morning, he chirps cheerfully to his assistant, who's stationed at the desk ten feet in front of me. He picks up his messages from her waiting hand and smiles so brilliantly, my chest hurts. Good morning, Mr. Dawson, she returns easily. God, he's a beautiful human being. High cheekbones, a strong jaw, and a perfect complexion are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his Clark Kent-esque charm. He's tall, but not too tall, and just fit enough to see the hint of muscular bulges beneath his crisp, collared shirt. He also has the algorithm for grooming balance nailed. Kempt, but not super feminine, Chase Dawson might as well be red-hot candy in human form. He turns on his heel, and that brilliant smile is now focused on yours truly. God help me. Brooke. He croons deeply, closing the distance between us and kneeling down to give Benji a scratch behind the ears. My sweet canine moans that it feels so good. I only wish I knew the feeling. It's great to see both of you, and I'm so sorry to have kept you waiting. He continues, that smile never wavering despite the risks it's causing to my sanity. Morning meeting ran a little long. They apparently didn't get the memo about who my visitors were for today. I return his smile, still unable to form actual words. Pathetic, Brooke, pathetic. I also have one quick phone call to make, if that's okay with you, he adds, and his full, perfect lips turn down at the corners. I feel terrible to keep you and Benji waiting any more than you already have, but I'm afraid if I don't make this call, they won't keep me around to edit for you, and I'd absolutely hate that. Uh-huh, I nod, and it feels like my neck doesn't understand there's a point where you need to stop nodding before you look like one of those bobblehead toys they give away at baseball games. That's of course, mm, fine, I mumble, 
My tongue trips over itself because apparently I am a toddler learning how to speak for the first time. For the love of everything, get it together. I swallow, clear my throat, and attempt my best impression of a casual woman who hasn't been having sexual fantasies about the wickedly handsome man standing in front of her. Though my impression is more of a silent film version, where I don't say a word, but offer a far too big smile in his direction. If Benji were wearing his Batman costume today, I could be his Joker. Do you want any coffee? Some tea? Maybe a cookie or two? He winks. He winks. At me. If you snack on the good stuff, they let me have some too. Um, sure, sure. I clear my throat again, trying to remind my vocal cords they have 31 years of experience at their job and need to start using it. Coffee would be great. As would a lobotomy with a rusty knife and no anesthesia at this stage of discomfiture. Chase chuckles a little, and I panic that I've just said the line about the brain removal aloud. I look at Benji, who's studying me closely, thanks to many rapid changes in my heart rate. Did I just say that out loud? The backstabbing, adorable bastard in the Thor getup and service dog vest doesn't answer, instead tilting his head to get another scratch from Chase. That's it. I'm canceling the Captain America costume order when I get home. Chase's assistant gets up with a nod, not even having to be told to carry out my coffee and cookie order directly, and Chase gives Benji one final rub behind his ears and stands up straight. I'll just be one minute, he promises, his impressive white line of teeth on display, courtesy of his smile. I nod. A minute is good. A minute gives me time to gather myself out of the pile of goo on the floor and try to remember how to put a mother-flipping sentence together. Chase glances over at me for a moment, and then even though I didn't think it was possible, his grin grows. You look great in purple, Brooke. <sighs> Thank you. Your tongue would look great on my nipples. His grin turns megawatt, and again I have a brief moment of panic, wondering if I said the thing I didn't mean to say. Of course, I didn't say that out loud. Lord knows he wouldn't be grinning. He'd be, like, running for the hills or something. But holy shit, why can't I distinguish reality anymore, especially when my thoughts are this demented? Chase heads into his office behind me, and the glass door to my right falls closed almost painfully slowly. His voice is distinct, cheerful, and confident as I hear him at the beginning of his call. Jim, I got your message about the Baranski deal. I have a couple of ideas for strategy if you're ready. His voice fades out as the door finally settles into place, and I let go of the tension I didn't know I'd rammed into the base of my spine like a rod. I've been white-knuckling the armrests of this chair so tightly that my fingerprints are visible in the creamy velvet. My palms are also sweaty, and I discreetly wipe them down the front of the lavender dress Chase said I look good in. Newsflash, he said you look good in the color. Not good in the dress. I want to smack myself across the face, but decide that's not a good look, since the office behind me that contains the man who makes me turn into a moony-eyed crazy person is made of a glass door and glass windows. 
pretty sure witnessing someone slap themselves is a huge red flag. Of course, Benji is on his feet now, likely sensing the impending disaster my little emotional breakdown is liable to cause. Using the breathing techniques I've learned over the years, I work vigorously to bring myself back from the brink of unconsciousness, glancing over my shoulder briefly to get another look at Chase's comforting smile. Because for as much as he riles me up, he also calms me down. And yes, I am aware I've never sounded more insane than I do right now. Thanks for asking. Since Chase's assistant, whose name my fogged up brain can't seem to remember, is down the hall and Benji and I are alone, I don't censor myself while trying to regain control. I take several deep breaths, enough that I'm pretty sure I'm responsible for the entirety of the oxygen-carbon dioxide exchange on the planet until I've melted back into a semi-recognizable version of the woman I aspire to be. Come on, Brooke, you're acting a little immature right now, don't you think? Adults can have crushes without melting down, for heaven's sake. There she is, the voice I paid $100 an hour to find in post-divorce therapy. And even better, she's right. Sure, I find Chase Dawson dreamy in the way that suggests I should participate in a sleep study or two. But as a rational, professional, compartmentalizing, capable adult, there's no reason I can't find a way to be work, Brooke, for the next 30 to 45 minutes. She's a badass. She knows her worth. She, unlike the anxious me, sometimes recognizes how meaningful it is to have landed a Netflix deal and live in an apartment in Lenox Hill that doesn't inherently smell like moldy cheese and farts. Newly pepped, I straighten the line of my spine and sit up tall in my chair. Benji notices, giving me a canine nod of pride. We got this. I wink at him. I fold my hands in my lap and try to position myself in my chair until my legs are crossed, and I look like a professional woman who isn't at all on the brink of a nervous breakdown. I am victorious. Squeaky wheels chatter with Chase's assistant, Dawn's, go me remembering her name and everything, return, the chocolate cookies atop the cart she's pushing, hearkening my mental win like a siren on a slot machine in Vegas. She smiles politely, parking the catering rollaway right in front of me and locking the wheels. I thought you might want to go ahead and have a cookie or two while you're waiting, though he shouldn't be long. Thanks, I reply, my voice belying my now obvious affection for Dawn. She's like, really nice. With a quick nod and a wink, she returns to her desk and dives right back into work, I'm almost astonished. I mean, she didn't even pick up her phone and scroll TikTok or anything. If only you had her willpower, maybe Garden of Forever would have ended up good, and you wouldn't be here stressing. I squash that thought before it can even grow legs. I look down at Benji and note that he is studying Dawn too, and I'm sure it's because he's never seen such focus before. Her fingers roll across her keyboard, like they're one memo away from solving world peace. And I'm convinced the modern me would never make it in a job outside of writing. Thanks to my fascination with Dawn, I don't realize that Chase has opened the door until he's standing right next to me, his smile nearly all the way wound up. 
you ready? He asks, causing a jerk in the muscles of my neck so violent that a shooting zing of pain rolls up the side of my face. No doubt I'll be working out that new king for the next week. Uh, oh, I stutter. Yes, let's do it. My fist pumps in the air as though it has a very Jersey mind of its own, and Chase laughs, like throws back his head while his chuckles make his vocal cords pump at the line of his sexy throat. By God, no wonder I wrote a book about this guy. Fantastic, he cheers then, holding out a hand to help me out of my chair. I love the enthusiasm. It'd be so easy to get embarrassed again right now, but thanks to all the willpower I can fit inside my five-foot-six body and desperation born from years of dealing with my own awkwardness, I managed to place my sweaty, clammy hand into his completely dry one and stand. Benji pushes to his feet at our sides and follows us into the office obediently. I don't realize until we're entirely through the door that I'm still gripping his hand, and drop it like it has the power to burn my skin right off my bones. But Chase continues to maintain so much nonchalance that I'm honestly not even sure if he noticed. The door falls closed behind us, its path still creepily slow, and Chase rounds his desk to the other side, all while holding out a hand to the chairs at the front. Take a seat, he suggests warmly, tucking his tie close to his abdomen so that it doesn't get caught on his desk as he sinks into his chair. He's a professional suit guy, but not in the way that's boring. Of course not. He could never be boring. Everything he wears, every pair of dress pants and every collared shirt and suit jacket fits his body like a glove. I'm certain he gets his clothes tailored. It's either that or he just has one of those perfect bodies where everything fits him. I, on the other hand, have one of those bodies where finding a good pair of jeans that fits me is like finding the golden ticket in a Willy Wonka chocolate bar. You know, Brooke, I've been looking forward to this meeting for weeks, Chase admits unabashedly, rolling up the sleeves of his white button-down shirt almost recklessly until both veiny forearms are exposed. You have. I hear my mouth question with an apparent mind of its own. Heck yeah. Longstrand wanted me because of the book I handpicked at my old publishing house, landing on the New York Times for 29 weeks, and you're the reason I wanted Longstrand. I can't be too sure, but I seem to have swallowed my tongue. Seriously, I think I can feel it in my throat. He chuckles a little, his cheeks heating to the most subtle color of rose. That sounds pretty creepy the more I think about it but I'm a fan of your work. And my sister, well, she's a super fan. I'd have been excommunicated from the family tree if I didn't jump at a chance to work with you. I'm flattered and flabbergasted all at once. I'm flattergasted. You'd read my stuff before you came here? Yes. I think I read the first book in your Shadow Brothers trilogy within the first month of its release, before the press has even heated up too much. I knew instantly it was going to be a hit. You've got an ease of prose that lulls the reader into submission. To be honest, being so familiar with your work is what made this one all the more of a surprise. A surprise? Surprisingly bad, he means. 
And just like that, the whole reason I'm here, sitting across from the most handsome man who has ever lived, hits me like a semi-truck careening off the highway. Today's conversation is about Garden of Forever, and I know that manuscript isn't worthy of publication. I knew it when I was writing it. I knew it when I wrote The End. And I definitely knew it when I hit send on the email address to Chase Dawson at Longstrand Publishing. Shit, shit, shit. I knew they'd never let that heaping pile of fly-covered cow manure go to print. The need for flight pounds in my temples, and I consider just up and darting out of the office like one of those little psychotic birds, barn swallows. My grandparents had a barn swallow problem when I was a kid, and it was fascinating to see the way those feathered lunatics would just recklessly fly all over the place. That said, Chase continues, I'm seriously impressed by the seamlessness of the transition. What? What transition? Transition from being a successful novelist to a rock-bottom hack who can't write? Brooke. Chase smiles like he's really proud. This is good. Really fucking good, if you'll excuse the language. Um, what? You, you, you like it? Yes, he nods. I have some modest ideas that I think can really turn up the emotional tug to an 11. But Clive and River's chemistry is undeniable. Their story is magnetic, Brooke. Truly captivating. Did he just say, Clive and River, brain cells wither, and a blinding light cut only by the shadow of a dark man with a scythe paralyzes me? Sweet Lord and the land of Jesus, I know this man did not just say the name of the character I've written about him. Right? Tell me for the love of everything holy, that's not possible. Those words were never meant to see the light of day, let alone land on his desktop. Inside that fangirl fiction book that no one should have ever seen, I wrote some seriously sexy fantasies, described down to the minutest of details. I put my pen to the paper, fingers to the keyboard, in the hope that I'd bleed out any and all feelings for my hot editor from my system. I did not write any of those words with the intention of having them read. As a matter of fact, if I had, I'm more than certain I would have omitted 99% of them. If I'd known Chase, of all people, would see that manuscript, the book would have been so fade to black that all that would have been left would have been two lines of dialogue that overutilized the word, Hello. Hello, River. I'm Clive. Hello, Clive. I'm River. The end. Chase is still smiling at me, and my heart is taking it personal. Up, 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 the rate of my ventricles pumping blood throughout my body increases. I grip the armrests of the chair, and white dots start to take over my peripheral vision. Accidental attachment is fantastic, Brooke. Clive and River together are fire. Their passion has an intensity you can feel. Okay, yeah, I'm no longer on the brink of passing out. It's coming. I can feel it. It makes me think of this blooper reel I saw on YouTube, where a man passed out live on air while in the middle of a conversation with a news anchor. His face went from red to white, and his final words were, I'm gone, before he fell like a stack of dominoes to the floor. Honestly, their sex is some of the hottest I've ever read in my life.
Chase adds. And yeah, I'm gone. Benji jumps to his feet in front of me and starts nudging, trying to keep my attention long enough to get me into a suitable position. You wouldn't necessarily think of the fact that there are both good and bad ways to hit the floor when your body turns into a limp sack of noodles, but as a resident expert on the issue, I'm here to tell you it's true. Benji's primary purpose is to alert me before I'm past the brink of lights outville. But in the event, such as this, that the tank in my blood pressure is too fast for even a super dog, he has to settle for finding a way to prevent me from splitting my head open. The room spins and vomit percolates right there, just at the back of my throat, waiting to spray its embarrassing chunks all over the hunkiest man I've ever seen's office. It really wouldn't be so surprising, though, because for as successful as I seem on paper, I'm also in the top one percenters of awkwardness. This is all just par for the course in Brooke Baker world. Brooke, you okay? I hear Chase question foggily, almost like he's standing on the other side of a bridge in a distant haze. I try to answer, I think, but my words are nothing more than garbled gravel on my lethargic tongue. Benji gets impatient, shoving his body between mine and the side of the chair and effectively sliding me off the front edge like a rubber waterfall. I land none too gently on my ass, but the sting is nothing compared to the one I feel seeping into every vestige of my pride. With quick pause and a soft bark, Benji rounds the space behind me and jumps on my back, forcing my head between my legs and a slight awareness to return to my mind. Oh my God, Brooke. Chase croons in a way that seems both distressed and controlled from right in front of my face. I'd love to be able to focus on the perfect, passionate blue of his dreamboat eyes from this unexpectedly close position. But to be quite honest, I'm a little too occupied with using all my basic functions to avoid peeing myself. Yep, that's right. Unfortunately for me and the universe, one of the main side effects of going unconscious unexpectedly is losing control of your bladder. As if the humiliation of the whole thing isn't enough for people like me. The Almighty decided, hey, why don't we also let them piss themselves? No offense to God or anything. He obviously did a good job with everything else. I'm just a little bitter about this one tiny thing. Benji woofs softly beside me, licking at the apple of my cheek and bringing a tingle to my face. I'm coming back from the precipice. Hallelujah. But all my thoughts are still sluggish. Still, I fight hard, and I manage a horrifying fake smile for Chase. His eyebrows draw together in concern, and I pointedly ignore them. I'm okay, I think. Just ensuring my memories last longer by making them dramatic. The joke falls flat, but that's okay. I'm sure he'd find me funnier if all the blood hadn't drained from my face. Can I get you anything at all? Some water, a soda, what would help? What would help most is to go back in time and not fall off my chair and nearly pass out during a work-related meeting. But since that's not really an option, the soda is probably ranked at number two. I'll take a Coke if you've got one. It usually helps. Dawn, get me a Coke, please, quick. Chase yells through the glass wall of his office from his knees beside me, not even bothering to explain. 
Given my little girl crush on the super secretary, I'm really hoping she doesn't take offense at her boss's barking orders on my behalf. I focus on breathing. And, you know, not looking Chase directly in the eye, for the next minute, at least. Normally, I'd be dedicated to focusing on how he was feeling about the situation. About me. About the book. Dear God. The book. But if I'm ever going to make it off this tan Berber carpet floor of his, I'm going to have to spend a little time on me. The sound of Chase's glass door's hinges sliding open comes quickly, and Dawn's presence looms over the two of us. Oh my gosh, is she okay? Just testing out the floor as my zen space, I tease. As the British would say, it's rubbish. Chase chuckles, thankfully, and the momentary excitement of having my humor land is enough to get me up onto my knees and into the chair. Chase keeps a hand on my back to steady me. Dawn braces the seat, and Benji crowds the front of my legs to ensure I keep moving in the right direction. Dear Lord. A hunk, a costume-wearing canine, and a powerhouse woman who obviously has a heart of gold. Somewhere, there's a writer just wishing they could write a scene like this. I know it. Don twists off the top of the bottle of Coke and places it in my hand, even going so far as to curl my fingers around the bottle for me. Got it? She asks, and I nod. If you need anything else at all, you just let me know. There's a deli a couple of buildings over. I could get you a sandwich or some soup or... Thank you so much, I interrupt as politely as possible. But just the Coke should help. Plus, you already brought those cookies, and I think they'll be really disappointed if I don't eat them. Dawn moves so she's easily in my line of sight and gives me a warm smile before going back out the door. Chase nods at her over my shoulder, and as much as my nosy ass would like to, I don't know why. Benji, evidently satisfied with my progress, finally abandons his alert and curls himself up on the floor at the side of my chair. Chase notices. Hey, that seems like a good sign. I nod softly. I'm no longer posing a threat to your carpet's security. He laughs before joking. Was it something I said? Sheesh, if he only knew the power of his words, or his smile, or his blue-as-the-sky eyes. No, no, I cover. Just probably didn't eat enough this morning or didn't have as much caffeine as I normally do. Liar, liar, five cups of coffee, drinker's pants on fire. I'm feeling better, I promise. Okay, good. Instead of heading back for his chair, he leans his hips into the edge of the desk behind him and crosses his feet at the ankles, pressing his palms into the surface. Still, just in case, I'll try to keep the rest of this as short as possible. I really just wanted you to come in so I could give you an idea of the process we have ahead of us. The process? I ask dumbly. I mean, I'm three traditionally published books in with this publisher. Shouldn't I know what to expect by now? Yes, he says excitedly, rubbing his hands together. It could be a little confusing since you have a contract with terms for Garden of Forever, and we're switching it up with this different manuscript. I feel clammy again, and by the look on Chase's face, I'm guessing my skin is a matching shade of putrid. No, no, don't worry, Brooke. 
I don't think we're in the weeds here. In fact, I think we're ahead of the game. This new direction from you is just fresh enough to throw the market into overdrive. It showcases your talent in a way I don't think Longstrand ever even considered. Going with this book is the right move. I'm confident in that. But now it's my job to convince the other editors. Convince them how? He smiles. With my unrivaled pitching skills, of course. You did the hard work by writing a great book. And next Friday, I'm going to make sure everyone else understands just how confident I feel about it. Do you think there's going to be pushback about not complying with the terms of the title and content? I ask through a thick throat. I mean, I have the correct book just sitting on my computer, waiting for someone who's not an idiot to send the right file. It's crap, but at least it's what they asked for. And a little less life-ruining for me, too. No, Chase assures. It's a simple change for the reward of a bang-up bestseller. I swallow hard. Some withered part of me is still screaming, I can't believe this is happening. Once I get the go-ahead in the pitch, it'll be up to us to work through all the content editing changes and potential improvements. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're probably going to be sick of me by the time this thing goes to print. Why? I've never believed in the potential of characters like I do River and Clive. And I know this isn't your problem. But I have a hell of a lot to prove since this is my first fully solo project here. I won't sleep until it's perfect. So, we're going to be working really closely. Most definitely. He agrees. Like that isn't the biggest bombshell to the heart I could get. Clive and River are a collection of everything I've ever dreamed about this man and me together. And now, I'm going to have to dissect every single part of it while staring at his handsome face? Better dry clean your black outfits, ladies and gentlemen. Brooke Baker's funeral is sure to be soon. Chapter Two Brooke I pace the kitchen like a madwoman, blood pressure cuff on my arm and inflating. My problems with the vampire juice don't normally run on the high end. But with the way I've been feeling since my meeting with Chase this afternoon, I'm convinced hypertension is my new normal. Don't stand too close to this flesh balloon, folks. She's about to pop. Benji cranes his head at me and groans, flopping his body down onto the floor and looking up at me with judgy eyes. I scoff. Nobody likes a smart-ass dog, even in a Thor costume. No. Actually, I don't think I'm making a bigger deal of this than it is. He has the book, Benji. You know, the one where I wrote an entire scene dedicated to the way I imagine he would eat me out? I huff three sharp breaths in an attempt to keep myself from hyperventilating and reach a shaking hand out to pour more wine into my glass, ripping off the blood pressure cuff before it can finish. I'd have to stage a terrorist attack to be blowing this out of proportion. And believe you me, I've considered that a whole three times in order to come to the conclusion that blowing up the city I love and a bunch of innocent people is over the top. Benji cocks his head to the side, and he paws me on the shin in sympathy. There, there, you crazy woman. There, there, 
I chug a thick swig of Cabernet and bow my head with a lingering sigh afterward. Only I would get myself into this kind of situation. What kind of professional keeps their manuscript for the thing they hope never sees the light of day right next to the one that's supposed to, for Pete's sake? Probably the same kind who allows themselves to fall into an obsessive infatuation with their editor and turns it into a book. That's who. I know it's crazy. I know. Lusting after him. But I don't even completely know how it happened other than to say, the day I met Chase Dawson was the day the earth stood still. There were bright lights and powerful auras, and I'm pretty sure the whole circle around the sun thing paused for 10 to 15 solid seconds. He was something out of a fantasy I'd never dared to dream. Dark hair, strong cheekbones, and the friendliest smile. I swear you could melt a Catholic toward the devil if Chase just introduced the two. He had a perfect touch of a southern accent, not thick, just there, and the things he said to me with ease will forever live in the very core of my memory. I knew meeting you would be one of the highlights of my career, Brooke, but I didn't know your banter would be the highlight of my day. If I could carry you home with me, I doubt I'd need any other entertainment at all. Ha, ha, ha. Complimenting my work and my humor and managing somehow not to sound like it was scripted? I was sold. Down the river, swallowed up, fully on my way into a crush tailspin. Obviously, obviously, my mind took liberties in its imaginings of Chase Dawson from the start. Realistically? He's no more than a handsome human man with good people skills and charisma. Somewhere deep down, I knew that. But then there were funny, but still professional, text messages checking in on the status of Garden of Forever, and phone calls where I had to hear his sexy voice and laugh. The calls were brief, but they sure as shit didn't help dissipate my crush. And the next two times I saw him at Longstrand, you could have knocked me over with a feather's memory at the sight of his muscled shoulders and sent me straight to detention for the things my mind started to imagine. From there, every sexual impulse inside me ran wild. I barely know him, don't even know his favorite color. But as far as my imagination is concerned, he's the man the universe created just for me. And in this reimagining of the astral plane I've created in my manuscript of accidental attachment, Clive Watts, a.k.a. Chase Dawson, reincarnated as a dreamy TV producer, feels the exact same way about River Rollins, a.k.a. fictional news anchor, me. Burning, obsessive passion, smooth, effortless banter, hot, dirty-as-fuck sex, all produced from the little visualizations in my head. And now, everyone is going to read it. Oh, God, I'm going to vomit. Big, ugly chunks, too. Not the delicate warning that stays in your throat. I take off at a run for the bathroom and slide into the toilet like a baller stealing a base. I hit my knee so hard the porcelain rings like a bell, and a groan involuntarily jumps from my lips. Jiminy Cricket, I yell, the nausea still swelling up the walls of my throat. Battered kneecap forgotten, I heave myself up into a squat and tuck my head into the lip of the toilet bowl just nanoseconds before I spew red wine all over the white walls.
It's disgusting, to say the least. And beyond that, very, very telling. I'm not just upset about having my innermost thoughts exposed. I'm sick over it. And it's not even a full reality yet. If by some twisted fate, the publisher agrees to switch my contract, this thing is going to be pushed and shoved and publicized into almost every corner of the planet. If I'm this much of a mess now, I don't see how I'll ever survive when it publishes. I won't. My skin tingles, and a hair-raising chill at the back of my neck makes me lean into the toilet fully again. I don't get sick, though. Instead, my mind takes off at a run, searching, looking, begging for some way to get out of this. A plan. A con. A turn of the tables. If I want to keep food down in this lifetime, I've got to 86 the hell out of my dream man's drive to publish this book. Maybe I can worm my way onto the catering staff for next Friday's meeting, give them a mild case of food poisoning or something. Not like sick with a need for the hospital kind of thing, but a small mindfuck about the taste of my book in their mouths. I've heard Jonah Parrish, Longstrand's president, is the superstitious type. Maybe putting him off a little would work. Of course, I'd have to know who they normally use for their catering somehow convince them that Friday's meeting needed something special, and then also come off as a convincing chef, all without being recognized by Chase or anyone else associated with the publisher. It's risky. Deranged, really. So I have a strong feeling I'm going to have to move in a different direction. Perhaps I could send anonymous messages to the rest of the editors undercutting Chase's pitch, warn them off the book kind of thing, I shake my head. Not only is forming a coup against the man of my dreams a touch distasteful, it's also far too exposing. Since no one other than my publisher and I are supposed to have access to the manuscript, it might be a little messy to create a fictitious third party that's both believable and practical for the continuation of my career. I mean, I'm doing well, but not well enough to toss my shit in the fire and quit it all. Surely there's something else, something simple in nature without being generally harmful. An excuse. That's it. I need an excuse to convince him that what he read is not, in fact, worthy of publishing. Let alone taking it to the other editors and risking his own career. I need to give him a reason to throw that thing in a dumpster and never look at it again before he makes a fool of himself in front of his peers. Picking up my phone off the kitchen island while Benji sits at my side, an undeniably worried look on his handsome canine face. I type frantically in a draft with no number attached yet, you know, because apparently I tend to send the wrong things to the wrong people. Once I get the message I want, I'll add his contact, but I'll be goddamned if I'm going to send another clusterfuck right into the middle of my first one. Hank Baker didn't raise no fool. At least... Not a full-fledged one. So, that book you're thinking of pitching next Friday? The thing is, I plagiarized it. Ha ha. Oh, look, it's the side of me flushing my career down the toilet. No, delete. I know you saw potential in that manuscript, but the thing is, I'm not really done with it. I've got another part to write, and it changes the whole story and basically nullifies all the good parts of this one. Ugh, no, delete. Ha ha ha, 
I've got a funny story for you. As it turns out, I sent you the wrong book. I have a whole other manuscript to send you that's much more in line with what you were expecting. Other than the fact that it's a heaping pile of garbage, of course. Doing great here, Brooke. Really making progress on sending him a message that will help the situation. Are you sure the book is good enough? Finally, a message that might work. It's vulnerable and damn near soul-crushing. But it doesn't make me sound like a fracking idiot or a con. Adding his contact in at the top, I send the message and drop my phone on the counter like a hot potato before I can reconsider. It dings so fast with a response that a wrecking ball of lead with a caricature of Miley Cyrus riding on top swings itself into the lining of my stomach. Chase, better than, Brooke, it's one of the best books I've ever read. Oh God, what have I done? His words should make me feel better. Bring me peace of mind and a settled stomach. Instead, they inflict more fear than I'm equipped to handle. And Benji goes into service dog mode, gently knocking me right to the floor to push my head between my knees. The explicit book I wrote about myself and my editor, while he has no freaking idea he's the protagonist, is the best book he's ever read? That's what I was afraid of.